0: Well... When...
1: Welcome to the world of the western esoteric tradition. It is a pleasure to have you back here for Episode 8 of the Thought Hermes Podcast. This episode is being launched on August 6, 2017. My name is Rudolf. I am your host talking to you from Austria, nearby its beautiful capital Vienna. And I hope that you will enjoy this episode just as much as I did producing it for you. For those who are not yet regular listeners of Thought Hermes, I am just quickly repeating that this episode, like the previous number seven, is a bit an irregular one. In each episode, I present to you an extensive interview with an important personality from the world of the Western esoteric tradition. And this is of course also the case today. But next to that, I usually give you some feedback from previous issues, personal opinions, news from the occult realm and the reviews of freshly appeared books and other publications. This extra content will be back from the next episode onwards again, of course. And I'm also already happy to announce that we will further develop both the content of this podcast and the related website later this year. So stay tuned and come back to discover. Talking about the website, go and visit it on www.sourcehermes.com. That is,
2: T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S
1: dot com and find previous episodes, all the news, reviews, items, etc. But most importantly, you will also find the show notes to this current episode and you can discover our featured artist on the arts page. Currently, until the next episode, you will find the art of British painter Stuart Littlejohn. The Thor's Hermes podcast can be listened to directly from the website or in an individual player app and also on Blueberry, Stitcher, Spreaker, Android, Apple Podcasts, which is the new name of the podcast section of iTunes, and several other podcast apps listing Thor's Hermes. Please let me have your feedback, and you might be able to hear it on the next episode. You can contact me, as always, through the contact form on the website, via Facebook, Twitter or email, or leave a voicemail via SpeechPipe by clicking on the respective tag on the website. Here comes the interview. Today, it is a special pleasure and honor to introduce you to my interview guest. I am sure so many of you have been listening to one of, if not the greatest, occult podcasts that can be found on the Internet, and it has been around and active for over 11 years already. I am of course talking about Occult of Personality and my guest today is the founder and host of this great venture, Greg Kaminsky. Me too. I have discovered this podcast about 7 years ago and it has taught me so much since then. And I feel particularly honored to also act as Greg's co-host on Occult of Personality since some time now. But those of you who know Greg a bit in person will agree that he is far more than a wonderfully calm voice whose knowledge and insight in the occult world has brought him to dig out all kinds of extremely interesting content from his guests. He is himself a deep thinker, a thoughtful and kind person, and it was a great pleasure for me to talk to him for this interview about his first experiences, how a cult of personality came into being, but far beyond that about more recent developments in his way of thinking, about mysticism and a very personal world view. Our interview is, as always, split in two parts of about half an hour each. At the break I will come back to you to play a piece of music. Now come and join me to spend time together in the company of Greg Kaminsky. It is a great pleasure to have you, Greg Kaminski, with us here today on Thoughts Hermes. It's very particular for me to interview you because often lately we have been together interviewing people and now today it's your turn on Thoughts Hermes. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Rudolf. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be a guest on your excellent new podcast. So thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to spend even more time with you and your listeners.
1: Thank you. Greg, you have been giving so much to the occult and esoteric community over the last, I think, almost 11 years. It's been now since you created Occult of Personality. And I think it is time that more uh, listeners know a bit more about yourself. Who is the man behind Occult of Personality and how did it all start? So, if you wouldn't mind, um, let's take it from there. Okay. What is your path in the esoteric and occult worlds? What brought you there? Where were you? An early starter? Did you come to it rather late? How did it all start?
2: Um, I think if I had to pinpoint a moment in time, you know, I'm going to go way back when I was five years old. I remember it was one summer night, and uh, the sky was incredibly clear like more clear than I've ever seen it before. And I'm not sure exactly why it was so clear this night, but I remember looking up at the sky and seeing so many stars, it was overwhelming. And I just lay back in the grass and I had this sense of incredible insignificance and incredible significance all at the same time. And my five-year-old mind, none of this made any sense. And obviously when it happens as an adult, it still doesn't make any rational sense, but it, the feelings are run very strong. So that was like the first moment that I got some clue that there was a lot more going on than just the whatever the mundane reality that I seem to be experiencing on a daily basis. So even from a young age, I was curious about what is this really all about, and I never really lost that curiosity. And it just grew more and more as time went on. I can remember as a teenager being interested, or even younger than that probably, in elementary school, being interested in things like Dungeons and Dragons and this this idea of using magic as a weapon or protection. I found that fascinating as well. So So that that was uh, before we all got to know Harry Potter, wasn't it? Yeah, long, long before those days. And we're talking the early 80s at this point. Yeah,
1: So you were a really early starter. Many people in those realms actually are, but five years is quite young, really. And from then, when did you realize that those kind of impressions that you got were more than just... um, short glimpses when did it become more clear
2: to you well then we fast forward to somewhere around the age of like 32 33 this would have been around 2002 i was working at a financial services company doing some software development work it's all very corporate and um, i felt Completely lost in terms of you know that that greater curiosity about what is this this journey that we're on what is the great mystery and I remember being very curious about um, shamanism at the time and I'd been reading about these Indians in Mexico and how they used this Salvia divinorum plant for their shamanic practices basically and Not knowing anything about tradition or proper ways to do anything, I just basically decided I was going to try this because I was feeling a little desperate and willing to take that leap into the unknown. So one night uh, by myself, I smoked some salvia and had a pretty intense, what I now understand to be like a Kundalini experience, out of body experience. It was very brief, but basically clued me into the fact that this great mystery that that I was so enamored with and compelled to keep investigating um, was intimately connected with the human body and with the cosmos and the two were intimately intertwined so that was uh the beginning of a more substantial investigation into occultism and the esoteric all the subjects surrounding these things it just it really stemmed from from these few experiences i would say there was a few others but um
1: That those were key somehow for you.
2: These key moments in my life that just um, drove me into trying to learn more about all of this.
1: Mm -hmm. But you just said when one then starts delving more into the whole world of the occult, there are so many things to discover. And you mentioned shamanism as an entry door for yourself, at least kind of did you then I, I believe you would go for certain for certain currents because you can't at first grasp the whole wild field of, of the occult what was your practical entry path after those experiences did you you did you have any or did you just take a little bit from everywhere or did you specialize
2: um, let's see so. After the whole Salvia incident, I began to um, work from home and I would spend a large amount of my time doing research online. I think the subjects that really drew my interest primarily were things like symbolism and the way that the symbolism is encoded in religion and esoteric traditions, the way they extrapolate uh, from religious texts, for instance, sort of this uh, esoteric meanings and tell vastly different stories, if you will, than traditional theology gives us. And I, And I found this fascinating.
1: Would you call those stories that standard religions give us the exoteric part and that what you were looking for, the esoteric part? Could one... Define it like
2: that? Yeah, I think that's a fair definition. Mm -hmm. I also think that I had some innate sense that understanding the symbolism, how it's formulated, what it represents, would somehow lead me into greater understanding about this, you know, the great mystery, as I term it.
1: Would you call what you did then? agnostic research or uh, I believe if I if I remember well having read about yourself that you at some point in also were part of a agnostic church and also had an office there
2: if I'm not wrong I'd been uh, participating in a group that was like a study group and then we did a little bit of ritual Practice um, that was sort of centered around the work of Paul Foster Case, but it was not BOTA. And during the same time period, I was doing a little work with um, Alan Greenfield. And so I ended up going down and doing the consecration and some point showed work. Mm -hmm. So that was my connection with uh, the Gnostic apostolic succession and and that sort of thing which um, certainly very important definitely learned a great deal as part of that however it's not something I'm currently uh, cultivating I guess I could say Mm -hmm. Um, and I think my thoughts about the whole experience and what it represents has shifted pretty significantly from the time it occurred which was at this point, eight or nine years ago now.
1: But I think, well, if I may compare it with my personal experience, which is a bit similar as that I really started going into the esoteric intercult at about my mid-thirties, as you just explained for yourself, I think it's quite normal that one walks through certain currents in order to establish a place for oneself in a kind of center between different currents, because every individual probably, especially in the occult world, needs to find his or her position among those currents. Do you also feel like that, or is it different for you?
2: That's a good question. You know, I think I would have agreed completely even six months ago But um, I've met people who uh, haven't really had to go through that experience to be successful or whatever you want to call it on their spiritual path. So Mm -hmm. maybe it depends more on the individual and their interests and sort of what they're drawn to, I guess, is uh, as best I could express it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, You just said a word that I would like to pin you down on the successful in your spiritual path, how would you define that for yourself? What is for you in the spiritual path success?
2: Well, that's a good question, Rudolph. I'm trying. Yeah, <laughs> you're doing a good job. As always, I might add. Um, so what? how would I define success on the spiritual path? I guess the first thing I would say is... Uh, It's enjoyable it's not drudgery or boring and there's learning happening and there is some sort of measurable by other people's standards not just your own uh, growth happening and I don't mean just simply learning things and being able to regurgitate information I mean actual Changes in behavior and attitude Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. I've had this conversation in the past with a lot of people maybe not a lot, but certain people regarding sort of hallmarks of adept ship Mm -hmm. I guess you could call it It's hard to really pin down and I find it troubling that we don't actually talk or define this better in Western traditions What do you think?
1: Yes, I I think you're quite right. Actually, that was going to be my next point. Um, I was going to ask you at the moment, I'll come back to that question right away. I'm asking several of my guests here if they work more as a solitaire or more in a group, and what it means to them being a solitaire or being in a group. Is everything you want to achieve or that success you're talking about achievable as a solitaire or only in a group? What's your viewpoint on on the kind of work?
2: Hmm. That's also a very good question. I think, again, like if I had answered this six months ago, my answer would be completely different. So bear with me as Mm -hmm. I try to clarify my (laughs) thoughts on the subject. I think that... Ultimately, the work is really done in a solitary way. The way I I would like to approach it would be that my practice takes place where sense meets the sense field. In that manner, uh, the work is always a solitary thing, but the purpose of the work would also be to sort of hold the view that you know as there is no idea of an individual is like it's not a real thing if you try to to pin it down to locate it in time and space um mind is empty and open and luminous but it's not a mm. thing right so the eye is not a real it's not a thing so it's just a construct so Yes. That's, ki- that's kind of how I'm trying to approach my esoteric work, if you will. Yeah.
1: Well, of course, I have a, an advantage here on our listeners that you and I have been talking about those questions quite a bit over the last few months. And I have realized that your point of view might have shifted a bit. and. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about that at all, or if so, if you want to talk about that right now or, or later. But I think it would be interesting to know what caused that change of thinking so, in you, if you want to talk about
2: it. Yeah, happy to. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work with David Chaim-Smith. Technically, I'm the editor of his book, Deep Principles of Kabbalistic Alchemy, which is due to be released in August. It practically, this just involved me reading and rereading the text over and over and over again and making some very small suggestions. Nevertheless, I'm eternally grateful to David for this opportunity because I have been familiar with him and his work for many years Uh, Even to the point where I I thought I intellectually grasped what he was trying to say fundamentally. Mm -hmm. But I've come to a more clarified point of view, I think, on his work and how to better approach it and what the significance of it is. And so really... All of these changes that I'm I'm talking about that you're referring to are a result of working with Dave and um, the material that he's bringing forth. Um, Now, he has his own teacher um, who's from a a real lineage. Uh, He doesn't talk about that at all because uh, this teacher doesn't want to be known. Mm -hmm. But uh, it it is all real, and the ideas that he's bringing forth are all possible to realize through practice, which I think, you know, will be forthcoming in his um, later volumes of the series that he's developing, the Deep Principles book being the first of the series. That's really at the root of, of what's going on as far as I can, you know, express it here. Sure. I'm going to be giving a presentation on deep principles of Kabbalistic alchemy, at least you know from my perspective as uh, I've been taught by Dave and you know what I've learned as a result. Yeah. So that's really been a significant thing for me because uh, it's David and his work and his teacher. It's all. All of this has really radically shifted my perspective on things, and um, I can only encourage other people to consider contemplative mysticism as an actual path, because for me, it it really just changed everything, literally. Yes, I think I get the impression
1: that mysticism to many so-called occultists, I say so-called for a purpose, is... Like the fifth wheel on the on the cart, and they don't really take mysticism seriously enough. Many of them, I'm saying, not all of them, of course. And what you have told me about your recent discoveries or developments, and what I found out myself in the meantime, also, I think they're making uh, a rather big mistake in ignoring mysticism and putting it too much into the into the corner of dogmatic religion because that's not what it is or would you not agree
2: yeah i think you're bringing up a a really interesting topic because what we're talking about in terms of mysticism is really about gnosis or self-realization and to me this is really at the root of all magical tradition as well i mean it may not be practiced that way or taught that way necessarily now, but I think if you trace these things back through time uh, you'll find that uh, at some point along the way most every magical system and and really authentic lineage, it was also concerned with these ideas uh, i I really at at the root i don 't think they 're separate because the things or the no things the, that mysticism is concerned with are really at mm-hmm. the root of what makes magic work from a more uh mechanistic perspective Where even though cause and effect get tossed out the window ultimately you know it it 's really like working with things in a in a very mundane conceptual framework of everyday consciousness versus a Gnostic view where all time and space is is regarded as uh, an illusion uh, and that the self exists beyond All of that and I mean to, to me that makes any magic infinitely more powerful once you have attained, you know, that kind of realization you know if that were to be possible for people
1: probably nowadays we have tendency to see magic and occult tradition uh, too much through the through the eyeglasses of the late 19th century of golden dawn coming up uh, of theosophy and then of course through the big thelemic movement which put something else than mysticism much more in the foreground in order to do magic. And maybe through that, which was also a necessary development in my point of view, but maybe we lost a bit of touch with mysticism and uh, we see, for example, Renaissance mysticism, and we'll come back to that later in this this episode, but we see that a bit through uh, a religious eyeglass and we don't want to do that so we brush it aside and see the person the the ego more in the center of magic
2: yeah i think that's a very good point um yeah i think it's kind of undeniable i know that there's certain writings that crowley had that that kind of address these topics though so it, w- it didn't go completely uh untouched you know but being crowley like it, yeah, so there's like a, a duality to it, um, you know, writing about the ego and then being like the most egoic yeah. magician in history <laughs> or in modern history. So it's interesting. what you, You're ac- reminding me through your questions here. Um, one of the big moments that kind of like led me to this sort of shift in thinking was uh, in 2012 when I did the uh, – Esoteric book conference panel discussion with Craig Williams and Gordon Georgievic Craig and Gordon as well but uh, Craig really hammered home the the point about the huge disparity between the esoteric traditions of the east and the west and I'm um, not to say that every single esoteric tradition from the east is superior in you know in every way but the the most superlative examples of Eastern esoteric spirituality, by and large, dwarf anything produced by the West that we can, hold, you know, hold up at this point. Um, that's an actual, currently existing tradition, and I think that there's a lot to be gained by trying to understand, you know, some of the teachings from these other traditions and what they have to say about consciousness and reality and how to view these things that can really alter everything for anyone who's interested in esotericism or occultism from any angle. Because once you start investigating the meaning of meaning itself, everything shifts. Sure.
1: Well, could you do me and especially our listeners a favor? Um, You mentioned… Twice, I think, the no thing, so nothing, no thing. And what you were just saying right now, I think, goes a bit into the same direction of the meaning of things. Could you try to define that no thing, so just for for those who maybe are not so deeply
2: into your way of thinking? Uh, sure. So, Kabbalistically speaking... Uh, no thing or Ayin is uh, one of the three veils beyond the crown or Keter on the tree of life mm-hmm. um, and is thought of again Kabbalistically as if you're thinking along those lines uh, as like a creator, you know, either Ayin or Ain Sof, which is without limit or so. This idea of no thing basically, you know, the idea. I think you could probably trace it back to classical Greek philosophy, but this idea of thingness or uh, any kind of conceptuality can't apply to whatever this is that's, you know, beyond the crown of the tree of life metaphysically. So that's referred to as the no thing because it's, it's not a thing. It doesn't participate in thingness as such but depending on your view, you know, we might not either. So
1: Yeah, now thank you, but I think that 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 really helps to clarify that also to understand the background you're you're putting your thoughts on.
2: Okay. I hope so because I you know, it took me years and years to even get to the point where I can babble, you know, somewhat incoherently about it now, but I cannot imagine, you know, people listening to this never having encountered this kind of thought before and what they must be thinking.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. But this, what you were just saying, gives uh, me a perfect transition to another subject I wanted to talk to you about, which is, of course, and I think we owe it to our listeners, your podcast, Occult of Personality. I think you started Occult of Personality in 2006, if I'm not wrong. That's right. And that was a time when podcasting was by far not as popular as it is today. True. And uh, I just wonder what brought you the idea, what made you start Occult of Personality, and how did it all happen and come together?
2: So I was listening to some podcasts at the time that were exploring ideas of like ancient mysteries and conspiracies and things of that nature, and they were pretty entertaining, I have to tell you. I wanted to hear interviews with authors of a little bit more mainstream esoteric texts, you know, people like Lan Duquette. Or Don Michael Craig at the time, or you know, I could throw out a uh, popular esoteric authors. So, and none of those people were had an a- avenue to be interviewed in a podcast. So I thought, why not me? I could probably pull that off, and it'd be interesting. I'd get to have all my questions answered, and I could share it with other people who might be interested that was basically the the impetus to to start it it was very unlike me to do something like that because i was generally kind of a shy person and certainly didn't want to be any kind of internet personality at all yeah even but you have become even one then in
1: the, in this in this field
2: yeah yeah not not really cultivating it as such but yeah, it just kind of happens over time. And I certainly, sure. when I started, never anticipated it would go on for more than 10 years. If you had told me that, I, I wouldn't have believed it at the time. It seemed like more of a, of a hobby. But gradually, I came to realize that investigating these things, it just as you go deeper, it just encompasses more and more and more until there's nothing. It's the container for the uncontainable.
1: I see. Yeah, I see what you mean. And I must say since I'm doing this, which is of course very short compared to what you have been doing, um, I also enjoy the learning because every time I speak to someone and make an interview, I learn new things from those people and I find that personally also very fulfilling and exciting.
2: Yeah, undeniably, I think that's that's very true. Um, and, and I would say I did really relish that. Um, and there's a part of me that still does. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's really an interesting process, um, I have to say. And I'd certainly, I've, I never imagined I would learn as much as I have doing it. Well, I started listening, I tried to remember exactly the other day. I started listening
1: to Occult of Personality about 2010, I would think. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I would never have imagined that one day I would hear speak to you and interview uh, the big Greg Kaminsky, which for me was really one of the stars of that uh, occult uh, podcasting scene and still is. What I also, that sounds very mundane now, but what I also enjoyed from the very first episode I was listening to was your calmness and the way you were asking questions in a very clear and also very knowledgeable way and uh, now without wanting to blame anyone else but I think this distinguishes your occult of personality very much from many podcasts but who who don't go in depth and who don't open the host and um, this I really enjoyed and learned also by listening to your podcast and I think uh, you have given so much to the podcast community that everybody should be really grateful for that.
2: Oh, thank you, Rudolf. That's very kind of you to say that.
1: 11 years and I think about 185 or so episodes, right? And how does it feel 11 years later?
2: Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, I guess I feel like I've finally reached the bottom of the rabbit hole. <laughs> I guess that's that's the best way I could describe it.
1: I don't know about you, but what Greg has to say opens completely new doors to my thoughts. Many things are new to me. I need to research further, but do it with great pleasure. And I am happy to have the privilege to talk to Greg regularly, and I am therefore able to ask him further. But as he will tell you later in the second part. He is also happy to answer your questions. Today, the piece of music I would like to play for you is also from a musician who Greg very much likes. It is an Arbor-based group, just a tourist. And as it says on their Facebook page, music from the depth of wisdom and bliss. Just the tourist lead musician spent half a year in solitary Buddhist retreat and the other half in the studio creating this music that touches the heart and mind. From their titles I chose one that I find particularly appropriate here. It is called My Friend.
3: My friend lives in the deep woods, she follows the white moon street sleeps in the cloud mist Some say she sits alone.
1: their song my friend we will now return to the interview with Greg Kaminsky where among other topics you will also discover the subject of his thesis he is currently working on at its center lies Italian Renaissance personality Pico di mirandola and Greg tells us about the importance of that man for all that today we usually call the Western esoteric tradition. Now let's go back to the person, Greg Kaminsky, who is also, as I know, uh, at the moment, writing a thesis and soon finishing it on a subject that, at least partly, is very dear to yourself and brings us also back to the, the subject we treated a few minutes ago uh, about mysticism and uh, how that movement developed. Maybe you you start talking about that first uh, and before I ask a few questions. So about your thesis and about the focus that you give in that
2: work. So I've been writing a thesis and it's taken a few years altogether just because The proposal that was originally accepted later was rejected, and I had to pretty much start over again. The main subject of the paper is uh, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, Italian Renaissance philosopher and author of the text that's uh, widely known as the Oration on the Dignity of Man, but he's responsible for several other major uh, works. And what I'm looking at primarily is the way that he develops the ideas about angels in his books and how humans can achieve union with the divine through basically emulation of angels. And he has a a very eloquent uh, explanation about how all of this works and and the reasons it it all works. And because of who he was and his genius, it's all quite well thought out philosophically and based on ancient wisdom tradition is very grounded in it. And uh, I have many examples from both prior to Pico as well as after Pico. Uh, Jewish mysticism, uh, Kabbalistic mysticism that very much supports every the single point that he makes. For me, it's been a, a real exploration of the philosopher who I find uh, to be at the nexus of the transition from Jewish Kabbalah to Christian Kabbalah, which then became the foundation for Western esotericism and Pico is really at the heart of that movement right at the start. And he's, I see him as the sort of the impetus for Western esotericism being brought into the modern era, uh, declaring it publicly and openly. Um, If it had existed prior, it had never been so openly exposed as he did. So Mm -hmm. without him, Again, I you know, we may not even know each other or have any of these traditions to speak of or, or connect us. So I think, you know, in that sense I feel a huge debt of gratitude to him. And I also feel that uh what he's saying, uh, in a philosophical way is uh at the time heretical, but true and important mm-hmm. you know this whole idea of spiritual ascension you don't need any organization or intermediary or priest or what have you to help you achieve that you know you can do it through uh, your direct contact with the divine hierarchy
1: could you just in a couple of sentences tell our listeners who pico was. I mean, he's just very briefly that people can situate him who might not know him.
2: So Pico was born in 1463 uh, near Modena, Italy. And he came from a noble family. Um, He was a count of Mirandola. He was considered a child prodigy Um, He went to university, I think he was aged 14, to learn canon law, and then he learned philosophy and all the languages and literature, all the classics. He was considered a genius of his time. It's really hard to encapsulate the influence that he had. His most famous work ultimately is oration on the dignity of man is really excerpted from his apology that was written in response to his excommunication and the banning of his conclusions these 900 theses that he intended to publicly debate at the vatican Um, included in these 900 theses were several that you could summarize as the Kabbalah is the only way to prove the truth of the Christian faith, that natural magic is valid and is not heretical. You know These kinds of things mm-hmm. caused, caused all sorts of problems for him. I'm sure, but, I mean, someway, somehow he was lucky not to have been burnt on the stake. Yeah, so he would have been, but uh, Medici stepped in and said he would uh, basically protect him. He would mm-hmm. vouch for him. So Pico would not be a problem for the hierarchy, the church hierarchy any longer. And and that was more or less the case because Pico, although he continued to express his ideas, he was able to do it in a much more subtle and skillful way so that it wasn't so in your face and it wasn't quite so heretical. You know, he he would focus more on uh, things like uh, reconciling Plato and Aristotle, or right. he'd focus on the Book of Genesis. You know, topics mm-hmm. that were a lot less dangerous than the Kabbalah or natural magic or you know any of those type of things that were going to really raise eyebrows so medici saved him but ultimately he he got wrapped up with savonarola i don't know if you're familiar with yeah the bonfire of the vanities and this of just a, like a fundamentalist and uh pico ended up being murdered as it turns out uh, it was paul political so you know this i think a result of the fact that he was brilliant His ideas were not mainstream and ran counter to the hierarchy. I mean, just like the Kabbalah itself, Pico was kind of ambivalent towards authority.
1: And when you question the official opinion, of course, you're a danger for the power and for the hierarchy.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's basically the one who started Christian Kabbalism. So it's no accident that his legacy was whitewashed after the fact and, you know, his his nephew who is the his basically the heir of his legacy tried to make it seem like all of these ideas about kabbalah and magic and things were and angels were just his youthful exuberance and that he matured later and you know moderated or changed his position on all these things but if you look you know really incisively at his work with a close reading you'll see all those ideas are really Still there, but they're not expressed using what I would call the ancient wisdom tradition language. You know, he expresses yeah. it in much more reservedly, using much more traditional Christian sort of language. Um, but if for anyone who can read it, or at the time, you know, had the sort of level of education that Pico was sort of writing for, I think. It, they would have been able to decode it. Certainly, if they can decode the the kabbalistic references that are you know encoded in his oration, they're going to be able to decode these other writings as well. It's really, mm. I think, more modern times where we lack a classical education. We don't we don't have these um, ideas of rhetoric and logic and and education and these things. To be able to really critical thinking and how to sift through language and what someone is saying to truly discern the meaning of it, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and, th- and that's one thing that reading Pico can clue us into is that language itself is like the building block of reality, right? So if, you, yeah. if you're able to manipulate language, you could – like Pico, it would allow you to envision both the granularity and unity of creation all at the same time, even though there are variations, you know, in those ranges that if you look at one in particular, it seems paradoxical to the other, right? But if if you manipulate the language skillfully enough, and as a philosopher, Pico had that skill, uh, it, it allowed him to intellectually sort of behold all of creation from his little mind, if you will.
1: Well, in the beginning was the word. That's what it says,
2: right? It's exactly right. Yeah. So.
1: But it's interesting, do correct me if I understand you wrongly, but um, we're, we're talking about the seven liberal arts and rhetoric is one of them, but also geometry is another. and. Today, we see a kind, at least in the occult world, that we see a kind of revival of sacred geometry and sacred numbers, etc., uh, as a basis of the creation of the material world. Do you think that the other liberal art rhetoric could also be seen or is seen by people like Pico as a possibility to? create a material world in the same way as sacred geometry
2: would be? Uh, That's an interesting question. I don't know. It'd be hard for me to speak for him in that way. I don't know how he would really interpret that.
1: Um, For yourself?
2: Could you restate the question? I I want to make sure I answer it.
1: Um, I think that the the, the seven liberal arts, Mm -hmm. each of them is like a tool is, right. a, is a way to to build our material world and today what we still practice so to speak is sacred geometry for example when when we try to find a structure in our material world where it all comes from and i would think that rhetoric when we say the word is creating something the word is creating thought and thought is creating will and will is creating reality and mm-hmm. um, rhetoric has a similar role to play on another level like sacred geometry and the other liberal arts have on their own levels
2: yeah i think so i mean i'm not sure how how it exactly relates to rhetoric or the the liberal arts and sciences for sure but i know that the way that we frame things so it even could go beyond linguistics to just a Mm. simple point of view but that point of view can then inform the linguistics that go into describing like a whole cosmology. So it is basically, that is essentially the word, you know, the word yeah. is, yeah, God, cosmology. Yeah. Yeah. you know, and, and so linguistically you can then sort of shape this texture, if you will, then it can, then it's sort of, it's like an Ouroboros sort of feeding back in on itself. So then the view informs the linguistics, the linguistics sort of feed back into the view and it then reinforces, you know, and then you get this sort of reflection effect that, uh, and this is why we call, you know, this is the alchemical mercury that that we're talking about.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, very complicated questions, of course, and difficult to answer in two minutes and in the time we have here in the podcast. Certainly. I have another question for you. I, I take a phrase or a sentence from your writing saying, Pico viewed angels not only as celestial intelligences, which could influence and communicate, but more so as emulative models for human attitude and behavior. Could you expand a little bit on that?
2: Sure. So in Pico's system, what he was basically doing is sort of tracing the angelic contacts, you know, that are detailed in scripture, um, Mm -hmm. as well as in tradition. So you have, for example, pseudo-Dionysus, the Areopagite, and his celestial hierarchy. So that's really the basis of the Christian angelology. So Pico's aware of that, uh, of course, because everybody who knows any theology is aware of it. It's the basis for their angelology um, and the hierarchy and how it's arranged. Seraphim, cherubim, thrones at the top. And he also comes becomes acquainted with the Kabbalistic model of angels, uh, the messengers of the Old Testament, the Torah. Mm -hmm. They're seen in uh, Ezekiel's vision. They are said to visit Abraham on their way to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are also recognized as figures that are cast in pure gold on the top of the ark of the covenant so the mm-hmm. cover the cover of the ark is pure gold and is composed of these two cherubim with wings extended facing one another to form what they call the mercy seat and i should mention that in the jewish tradition they have a variety of different ways of ordering these uh, this hierarchy of angelic orders but most of the time the cherubim end up in the ninth spot out of 10. So they would be one up from the bottom and humans are usually at the bottom or they would say, you know, men of renown or the sages or, or prophets or like great men would be in the 10th spot. But it was considered like cherubim were the, the beings responsible for like the creation of man who was one below them. So essentially, yeah. if you're looking at this in an emanationist model, each Order each angelic order creates, if you will, the order below it and is responsible then for that order. So in the Hebrew scheme, uh, cherubim are in the ninth spot, one up from the bottom. Again, in the Christian scheme, they're in the second spot, mm-hmm. right below the seraphim. So what Pico does in his 900 thesis is he actually reorders them. And he says right. cherubim are at the top, seraphim are second thrones are third and essentially what he's doing is he's basically taking this tradition where the cherubim are really the angelic order that is uh they're tasked with protecting the garden of eden when adam and eve are exiled they cover the ark they show up in ezekiel's vision i mean in key moments the cherubim are there Mm -hmm. identified so they're very important they're also identified in Christian tradition as the angels that uh, are ascending and descending Jacob's ladder. In. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and also, Christian. I think, if I'm not
1: wrong, they are, uh, together with the seraphim, announcing Christ's birth. Right.
2: Now, I and also, you have to bear in mind, like, we all... S- in modern times, we think of the cherubim as like little children. Yeah, well, that, right. that comes from the Baroque times, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so as far as I can tell, the the reason for that is the Hebrew word keravim. Um, there's another Hebrew word, kerava, I think, which is spelled exactly the same, aside from the vowels, the same consonants, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, refers to childlike nature. Right so it's and and that I think in implies a sort of a kabbalistic uh reference, so interpreting them as childlike symbolically may be very accurate um nevertheless uh they're angels, and you know all angels they're usually like uh they tell people when they appear, you know have no fear because they're frightening as hell, supposedly yeah very powerful beings. So Pico's looking at the cherubim as a, in a place of prominence. And there's also this concept of uh, celestial intelligences, right? That angels are somehow participate in the one mind, you know, whether that's God or the one of Neoplatonism or whatever you, I don't, mm-hmm. however you like to categorize that if you're a monotheist of whatever nature. Um, yeah this faculty of intelligence is specifically associated with the cherubim again. And for Pico, that's a huge thing because he recognizes that this faculty of intelligence or the mind, well, that implies the ability to learn. And what that means is if the cherubim are specifically associated with this faculty of intelligence and the ability to learn. That means that they can move up and down the hierarchy, that's divine hierarchy, because they can learn how to do the things that the other orders of angels do. They can learn how to be truly devoted to God like the seraphim, they can learn Proper discernment and action in the world of form, like the thrones. So Pico says, emulate the cherubim, you know, learn about philosophy, and then you would learn the truth of who and what you are, and thereby you would learn the truth of what the cosmos really is. And only then can you understand what the divine is. And once you understand what the divine really is, then you can actually truly love the divine. Because prior, you can't love the divine because you don't know what it is. Which makes (laughs) logical sense. And then he says, once you can love the divine, then you can truly act with discernment in the world because your motivation is pure. It's a prescription for spiritual ascension purification, learning, you know, using intelligence to connect with the inmost nature in contemplation in uh, and ultimately in divine union. So Pico says, by doing this we can not only walk with the angels but unite with the divine. Um, and he, he has many eloquent quotes that he uses to describe this process. But that's the the gist of it.
1: Yeah. Well, that's fascinating, Greg. Um, I have one more question about this to you, uh, but more general. When you do such academic work on a subject, on a personality, on, on, on ideas, is that, so to speak, just academic work which you could do on any subject that is within your field of interest and knowledge? Or does the experience of working on those texts and, and searching and researching and rewriting, um, does that experience change your own way of thinking? Does it influence your point of view, how you approach your own spiritual world? Or is it, are those two things completely separate?
2: I don't think they're completely separate. I think it does – because the subject and because it's so close to my heart and I'm passionate about it is – I think it naturally informs me and who I am and my thoughts on all of these things. Mm. So I I think that's somewhat inevitable. I think uh, it was Nisar Gardata who said – Anything can become a path provided you're interested enough. Hmm. And I think that's really true. And I th- believe that if you're interested enough in, in anything, you can follow it to its you know ultimate ends. And by doing that, you're going to learn about yourself. It's going to teach you things that you didn't know about not only the subject, but yourself and your capacity for opening up those doors. You know, seek and ye shall find. It's really true. Um, and when we yeah. when we go on a quest, if we are persistent and our intentions are pure, there's no telling what we may uncover.
1: Using the word thing of another school in the esoteric, one might say this is forming the true will, isn't it?
2: Yeah, in, in many ways, I think so. Although ultimately I think again, your view kinda informs how you the conclusions you might draw, but inevitably it, it feels the more you're you're looking into these things that you're just being drawn in like a moth to a flame. And burning your wings or necessarily? Well, I mean that's the whole journey, right? So you get uh-huh. to that to the flame, you realize that's you're the flame, you're not the moth, and there is no moth.
1: Those words I don't know what we could add to them without becoming mundane again. <laughs> 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 well, Greg, this was an extraordinary hour in your in your company and I am sure our listeners enjoyed very much um what you had to say. And thank you also so much for being so open about your personal points of view and about your your story, you know, where you come from. Uh, I appreciate that a lot that I'm sure our listeners do as well. I'm sure that we will talk a lot also on those podcasts and not just in private, again, about subjects like today and others. But for now, I would like to ask you if there is anything that you would like to add if there is anything that is important to you in that context we were talking that we were not able so far to touch did we miss out on anything
2: i think we did a good job of covering all the subjects i guess what i'd like to say at the end is i'd like to encourage people to read the oration on the dignity of man um, simply as a way to get some historical context on Western esotericism, period. I think that mm-hmm. would be good. If people haven't read that, you kind of really should because it's essentially the declaration of the ancient wisdom tradition in a very public way, um, almost in a like throwing down the gauntlet. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is... I would encourage people, if they're at all interested in anything I had to say about mysticism or my views on reality or how I'm approaching esoteric practice or things of that nature, to either listen to the interview I did with David Chaim Smith, where he talks about deep principles of Kabbalistic alchemy, and definitely get the book and and read it because I feel – again, really strongly that what David's bringing forth, which is a reminder and reanimation of the core doctrines of Kabbalism that are expounded in the Fountain of Wisdom, the Zohar, Sefer Yetzira, And I think his reminder is really crucial. And I think it has the capacity or the potential to be, I mean, I hate the word the game changer because it, it just sounds so modern, but really that's what David is introducing, is, is, a, is a tool that would allow people to begin to radically alter the meaning of everything. Right. So that's probably the last thing I would say is just to try Mm -hmm. to encourage people, you know, to investigate contemplative mysticism if they're at all interested in it. Yeah. I'm available if people have questions or want to talk with me or about these sorts of things, I'm happy to. Available, you know, on Facebook, the Cult of Personality page or Twitter or email or contact me via net. I guess the final thing I'd like to say is uh, a thank you to the listeners, to you, Rudolph, as a co-host of a cult of Personality, and for this, you know, doing this interview, I appreciate it very much. And it's the final thing I'd say is, you know, the, the podcast is, you know, it's still available freely but yeah. that's it's only because people support it through the membership section which is at uh, chamberofreflection.com now um i would not be able to do this uh, and devote so much time to it and energy and thought to any of this if people didn't subscribe to the membership section because it's it's totally consuming my time and energy and my all my academic work is also like geared in this direction and all of that is available on uh, chamberofreflection.com too every paper i've written commentaries on them audio commentaries on them and this also the thesis uh, you know as far as i know that will also be available on the membership uh, section at chamberofreflection.com so just want to remind people of that as well. So thank you again for the opportunity, Rudolf.
1: Of course. No, it was a pleasure. And it's a very important point you're making. And of course, in the show notes on South Hermes with this interview, all the links that Greg just mentioned will be there to be found, both for Occult of Personality, the Facebook, the Twitter channels, and the very new Chamber of Reflection website, which is, as Greg pointed out, the membership section. And... Yes, go and support Occult of Personality. It's very important. It's for those, I'm sure almost everybody who listened to us today has already been on Occult of Personality at some point. But if you have not, there is a link on the first page of Thought Hermes website, which will stay there forever because listeners to go to Occult of Personality if you haven't already done so. And Greg, and please let me know when the book will be out. And I will uh, put a, a news in our news section of the following podcast to let our listeners know that the book that you were editing for David Keim Smith is out and available.
2: Great. Thank you so much, Rudolph. It's always Thanks, a Greg. pleasure. It was great having you today here. Thank you.
1: I would really like to thank Greg Kaminsky, that he has been willing to be so open about his thoughts and worldview and given us such a deep insight. As you can imagine, Greg and I talk a lot across the Internet when we are working together on Occult of Personality episodes. And of course, we also speak very regularly about our common interests beyond that. But this interview was nevertheless also a very special moment for me. Do not miss out on visiting and listening to or cult of personality and support the show. You will find links as always in the show notes. There I put also a link to the work of David Kime Smith, who Greg mentioned several times during the interview. And as soon as the book Greg was collaborating with David will be released i will let you know in the news section here but also on the website as i have told you before the interview there will be no new section and no reviews today therefore this will now be the end of today's toth Herbie's episode episode number nine will bring things back to normal if i may say so lots of news book reviews And hopefully, lots of feedback from you. And, of course, again an exciting interview. My guest in the next issue will be Colin Stanley, and the topic of our discussion will be famous British author Colin Wilson, whose books The Occult, Beyond the Occult, and Mysteries opened completely new ways for people interested in the subject in the 1970s and 80s at a time where it was still rather difficult to get an overview on the subject. Colin Wilson died in December 2013 and it was and is his bibliographer, Colin Stanley, who kept up the light and who we are going to talk to. I'm very happy that after those professionally stressful weeks I will again be able to bring this podcast back to you in the way I wish to. I hope that you passed an interesting time in our company on today's episode. I'm rather sure there were new and interesting things to hear and learn for almost each of you. Thanks for listening. Spread the word and return often. When the rules night sea journey tells me from the background that it is now time to close this episode, and I will therefore do so. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.